I want to share a poem that I wrote about my longing. I feel too shy to share it, so that's why I'm going to do it. It's called Buddha Can You. Buddha, can you swipe away my images of shame and failure? Buddha, can you entertain me with a story with no beginning, no ending that doesn't rely on the tedium of words? Buddha, can you inject me with something that will uplift my spirits and hide my excess for good? Buddha, can you put me under and painlessly with your wisdom laser, remove my doubts and my fear? Buddha, can you bring to life with a kiss that place no one has been able to reach, not outside, not inside, not body, not mind? Buddha, can you have my very own unboxed heart swiftly delivered? Buddha, can you tattoo me all over with love? So I've been talking about the uh, three mystic doors to liberation, wishlessness, signlessness, and identitylessness. And you find these throughout the Mahayana Sutras. The um, first one, wishlessness, freedom from wanting. Signlessness, freedom from naming and knowing, or the, the dull opacity of knowing. And then identitylessness, freedom from being. People say, oh, you meditate, you practice Zen, me too, I like to just be. But actually, <laughs> Dharma is about being free from even being. If we think about these in our sitting practice, this could be, you could think of this as three stairs. First, we have to let go of always wishing things were otherwise, the argument with this body-mind environment. Then we have to let go of the mind's incessant labeling and naming and ranking. We're always ranking experience. The reason you feel like this is not good enough is because there's some reference point about what is good enough. I have to let go of it. And then from there, we can be with just what is this thing I call me? Just what is this thing I call mind? And we can touch into freedom from being. A, a famous koan named Kyosei's Raindrops. So we've been listening to the rain on those times that we've been blessed to do so. And in some ways, as we do that, we join a lineage of tens of thousands of other Zen practitioners and practitioners of meditation who sat in this very same moment, at this very same point, listening to the very same rain. So Kyosei's raindrops. Kyosei, the teacher, asked a student, what's the sound outside the window? And the student said, the sound of raindrops. And then Kyosei quoted the Avatamsaka Sutra. He said, sentient beings lose themselves chasing after things. 
And then after the quote, he said, here is another suffering sentient being. Or he might have said it like, here is another suffering sentient being. Is this a rebuke? Or is this humility? So he asks, what's the sound outside of the window? And the student says, it's the sound of raindrops. We don't actually know how they said things. As you know, the energy with which you say something carries a lot of meaning. All we have is the words. Sound of raindrops. Sentient beings lose themselves chasing after things. Here is another suffering sentient being. Well, then the student said, what about you, teacher? And he said, I almost don't lose myself. I almost don't lose myself. So we're practicing losing ourselves and not losing ourselves. We are letting go of self and personality function. How about reframing personality as that? It's a function. It arises when you need it. And when you don't need it, you tuck it away. That would be the ideal. So we're practicing letting go of self and personality function, and we're freed into bell resonance. We're freed into the falling rain. We're freed of ourselves into vacuuming. We let go of that. I have to have a perspective on what I'm doing, and therefore an opinion and an evaluation. No, we're freed into vacuuming. We're freed into chopping. We're freed into napping. But then there's the other kind of losing ourselves. We're swept up in judgments. We're swept up in daydreams. We're swept up in emotions. We are swept up in lost, in habit bodies, uh, momentum. The thing is, the feeling of losing oneself is something that the heart, the deep heart doesn't like. It's like the poem from the other day that said, Mine's blah, blah, blah is a dog looking for a leash. Yeah, There's something in us which wants us to be in possession of ourself, actually. To lose ourselves and to be in full possession of ourselves. Our practice alternates like that. In one of the Zen texts, they say that a trainee in Zen should be like someone walking with a bowl of hot oil upon their head. That moment by moment, you are careful and alert, and what you do is with full consciousness. That doesn't mean walking around meekly trying to be careful about everything. not losing ourselves, moment by moment attentive, expressing our sincerity, not chasing after things. Why? Because this is what's right in front of me. This is what I've been given to meet. Sounds. What is the sound outside the window? Muster awakeness right now, if you will. And again, ask, where do I hear sounds? 
And you don't want to find the right answer, but what's your actual experience? This sound, where do you hear it? If you hear it outside of yourself, what is that that it is outside of? The skull, the ear? If you hear it inside, what is it inside of? If you hear it just right here, where is here? Can you let go of even here? This is an intimate point in our zazen. Even now and here are given up, are offered up. Sentient beings lose themselves chasing after things. What else are we supposed to do? That's actually the world's example, isn't it? It's people in varying degrees of sophistication, various flavors of desire, chasing after things. Well, that's at least one way to see it. To the point of sitting in session, Something in us wants drama and its perpetuation, and something wants to be free of it. Or maybe not in you, but at least in me, there's these two things. Something wants to be free of drama and its perpetuation, and something wants to be free of it. Now you could say, what do you mean drama? Or what do you mean chasing after things? There's just the joy of life. It's just the joy of life. Why, why, why do we criticize what's, what's wrong with just experiencing things and having pleasure and just the whole spectrum of being a human? And the answer is nothing is wrong with it. In the moment of joy, it's a complete expression. Now, if it could also be true with heartache, if the deep taste of heartache could also be a complete expression. Then there's some meaning to, what do you mean drama? It's just the joy of life. What are the ways we might be losing ourselves and chasing after things on the cushion? I don't know if this week they've been chanting the komyozos on my, yeah. Kohen Ejo Roshi says, Don't sit like a hungry ghost, a hell dweller, an angelic being, a human being, or an animal. Those are five of the, of the six realms. We sit like a hungry ghost and we're thirsting for something. We're thirsting and we're so, we're so thirsting that even various beneficent states might arise but we would sail right over it. Or sail's not even right, we would grasp right over it because we're thirsting for something that we've decided we need to have. And it's never enough. Yeah, hungry ghost. The addict's mind 
transferred into spiritual practice. Don't sit like a hell dweller. Just being irritated and inflamed by basically one's own thoughts. An inflamed thought feeds an inflamed thought, and we eat inflamed thoughts, and what comes out when you eat inflamed thoughts is inflamed thoughts. As a side note, it's said that if you develop too much sharp clarity in your meditation, it tends towards irritation. A little too keen. Noticing a little too much. Don't sit like an angelic being, drunk on pleasure. Drunk on pleasure. And that can be the pleasure of, you know, your greatest meals or greatest sexual encounters, or it could be the pleasure of some thought about oneself, or it could be the actual pleasure of meditation, but as soon as you become being drunk on that, it goes from being... uh, a virtuous energy to just an obstruction. We say human beings are drunk on thinking and feeling. We are sentimental creatures. I study cats, and cats feel, but they are not sentimental. It's very instructive. (laughs) I think they can hold grudges, but even that is kind of clean in a certain way. So we go on and on in teachings about meditation to not be drunk on thinking and feeling. Don't sit like an animal. Now, this is, this is tricky because some animals, we should emulate their sitting. Yeah? If we could sit like some cats sit, our practice would be right on. But this means don't be drunk on ignorance. An animal has teeth and claws and not too much intelligence, so it basically burrows its head in the ground when there's difficulty. It goes into a corner. Yeah. Sentient beings lose themselves chasing after things. So once again, I want to invite you to listen. Listen and pretend you're dreaming. Pretend you're in a dream listening right now. What's it like to hear sounds in a dream? What does it like to feel your body in a dream? And what are these dream sounds made of? What's the dream body made of?
If you have any affinity with this kind of practice, I recommend it as you um, sit down. Sit down and do zazen as if in a dream. Not dreamy, like you intentionally get sleepy. I realize I'm kind of doing a Stevie Wonder thing right now. But the texture of a dream. So the practitioner in response to Kyosei saying, sentient beings lose themselves and chase after things, he says, well, what about you, teacher? And Kyosei says this very deep, not simplistic line. He says, I almost don't lose myself. I almost don't lose myself. Thank goodness. It is... I think a difficult thing to be passionate about something, have a deep aspiration and not become um, rigid and try to do it perfectly. It is difficult to be passionate about something and put your whole heart into it and not start believing that the people who don't do it like you do it aren't doing it right. Yeah. That's why we have so much polarization in politics. Politics play on fear. Fear plays on the need to be right. The need to be right makes those who are wrong even more clear. The pure and perfect practitioner almost can't relate to us. Our pure and perfect practitioner can't relate to the rest of we, what we are. We alienate ourselves from ourselves when we get into this mindset of, I'm going to do it purely, I'm going to do it perfectly. But how do you square that with the aspiration to do your best, to practice wholeheartedly? We study the dualistic mind. We study how when we, even for a moment, get involved in a concept of the right, we have the wrong. How for some time we feel, I'm really doing it right, and we feel so good, and we're congratulating ourselves, and yes, and how that is the condition for later feeling like you're failing. Success makes failure. Failure makes success getting it and not getting it. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this to each other? I like this image of impermanence, that we're like, a practitioner is like being a fish in an evaporating pool. Being fish in an evaporating pool, the heart has urgency to do the right thing to find the right thing and to be the right thing. Right? Time's running out to get it. Time's running out to fulfill the meaning of human life. But where to look? I almost don't lose myself. Dogen Zenji said, an awakened and deluded person ride in the same boat. 
What floats your boat? What do getting it and not getting it rely on? Let's see if Sun Ra can comment on that at all. Sun Ra is a mystic musician of the highest caliber. And he's known also as a poet. So this is called Calling Planet Earth. There's no need to cry, no need to be confused or bewildered. Listen to the three of us, me, myself, and I. Architectural equation facts are the order of the day. There is change everywhere. The stars themselves in the solar system must be placed in new places around the sun. Earth itself must be positioned in a different place than where it is. Listen carefully to these words. They are not the words that have been or was. They are the words that are, is, and am to be. If you do wrong, you have to pay. But if you do right, you have to pay too. Also, if you do nothing, you have to pay. They have vagrancy laws, you know. You can go to jail for doing wrong. You can go to jail for doing right. You can go to jail for doing nothing. You have never been told this before, so now you know. There is something in the cosmos called fellowship, with a capital F. There is something in the cosmos called fellowship. Reach for it. If you want a better way, it is quite more sensible and more profitable to pay in advance to join the cosmos fellowship. Some people call it dues. If you pay dues for something worth infinite value, you will get what is due. So valuable, there is no place to measure its worth. Thus I have spoken, and thus it is hereforth written in the stars. So Anusha, Anusha yesterday talked about bliss and sukha as the other side of dukkha. The absence of dukkha is sukha. We could think about it that way. Bliss, sukha, is not some other thing than the absence of dukkha, the absence of grasping. Right? So bliss is a side effect. It's an enhancement when we are letting go. Now to get technical a bit about, about meditation. Attention is not a sharp, hard thing, and sound is not a bounded thing. And so you can imagine when you're listening, listening, it's like space mixing with space. Two soft-edged textures permeating until there's no difference. You could try that with the breeze. Your mind is a soft space that meets the breeze's soft space. And you let go of needing to know which is which. 
when we soften the mind and we soften the edges, it invites more bliss. There's a supportive condition for there to be more sukha in practice, and that is simply a relaxation. I've been talking with some people about how do you decouple an intensity of concentration from tension. I used to do session and get bloodshot eyes because I was straining so much. As if somehow if I broke capillaries in my eyes, my concentration was going to be better. Relaxation of body supports bliss because the, the, the stiffened body has stiffened channels and energy can't flow through it as well. And we know this. Different experiences in life tell us that there's more pleasure in the body when the body is relaxed. And actually, sometimes pain and fatigue is a secret or not so secret ally in this. If you consent to deep pain in the body, and you go through that, it changes something in your physicality. Over time, even in a short time, I don't know. So relaxation of body, and you can incline towards this in tandem with your listening. In other words, don't make a project out of fully relaxing your body because that's a bad idea. You'll never arrive at the end of that project. You just have some intention. Soften. Soften. To be vividly awake does not require bodily tension. I want to read something to you from the Surangama Sutra. There are a number of things in the Surangama Sutra, which is a very popular sutra in Chinese Buddhism, in, in Ch- Chinese Zen. And there are a number of things in it related to um, listening, to the nature of the senses being not separate from awakened mind. And here's one of those sections. This is the Buddha um, unloading on Ananda a little bit. The Buddha said to Ananda, you are very learned, but you have not yet put an end to your outflows. (laughs) It really wouldn't take psychic powers to see whether someone's mind is agitated or whether it's calm. But the Buddha could this is probably a terrible thing to have to live with. He could read people's minds pretty easily. So outflows means basically reactivity. 
Yeah, there's an image that says a practitioner's mind should be like an unstruck bell. Imagine one of those large bells that's just hanging. That bell is pregnant with potential. You tap it and it will begin to resonate. But the practitioner's mind is an unstruck bell, charged with energy and life, but not giving off the outflows, which are basically reactive thoughts. You know, somebody walks in the room and you don't like their toenails and all of a sudden you spend a whole period just with some absurd <laughs> narrative about should and shouldn't. That's an outflow. You are very learned, but you have not yet put an end to your outflows. You know the reasons for delusion, but when you encounter delusion, you fail to recognize it. It is to be feared that, though you are sincere, you still do not quite trust the teaching. Yeah, they say that a student who receives a rebuke from a teacher at this level must be a good student. Otherwise, the teacher wouldn't waste their breath. So, Ananda must have been an excellent student. It is to be feared that, though you are sincere, you still do not quite trust the teaching. I will have to make use of another everyday situation to dispel your doubts. The Buddha then instructed Rahula, and this is his son, Rahula to strike the bell once. So he rang a bell, ding, 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 ding. And he asked Ananda, do you hear? Ananda and the others in the assembly answered, we hear. And the Buddha didn't even ask them, so you can see how eager students they are. He lays into them in another sutra. <laughs> so the Buddha had Rahula strike the bell, do you hear? And Ananda and the other said, we hear. When the bell had ceased ringing, the Buddha asked again, now do you hear? Ananda and the others in the assembly answered, we do not. Then Rahula struck the bell once more. And the Buddha asked once again, now do you hear? And Ananda and the others again replied, we hear. The Buddha asked Ananda, how is it that you heard and then did not hear? Now take up that question without coming to any conclusion. What is he asking? How is it that you heard and then did not hear? Someone once said, the whole of Buddha Dharma is that at said, that at the moment of this, this exists. That's the Dharma. At the moment of this, this exists. Ananda and the others said respectfully to the Buddha, we heard the bell when it was struck, but when at length the sounding of the bell had died away and its reverberations had faded, we were no longer hearing. Reasonable enough. But as you've been sitting, is that really true? You're filled with guitar. You're filled with resonating bell. It stops. Does hearing stop? Then Buddha instructed Rahula to strike the bell yet again, and he asked Ananda, is there a sound now? Ananda and the others in the assembly answered, yes, there is a sound. In a while, the sound faded, and the Buddha asked, and now is there a sound? 
You imagine this is taking place in a soundproof room, and this is the only sound that is made. Sound faded, Buddha asked, now is there a sound? Ananda and the others replied, there is no sound. After a moment, Rahula again struck the bell, and the Buddha asked again, and is there a sound now? And Ananda and the others said, there is. The Buddha asked Ananda, how is it that there was a sound, and then no sound? They respectfully answered, when the bell was struck, there was a sound. But when at length the sounding of the bell had died away and the reverberations have faded, there was no longer any sound. The Buddha said to Ananda and the others in the assembly, why have you given such muddled answers? That's probably the best part of the sutra. (laughs) And they said, why do you say that our answers were muddled? The Buddha replied, when I asked you whether you heard, you said that you had heard. When I asked if there was a sound, you said that there was a sound. Since you did not clearly distinguish between hearing and sound in your answer, how could I not say that your answer was muddled? That's what he's getting at. Since you did not clearly distinguish between hearing and sound in your answer, how could I not say that your answer was muddled? Ananda, once the sounding of the bell and its reverberations had faded, you said that you no longer heard. If it were true that you had stopped hearing, your essential capacity for hearing would have ceased to exist. It would be like a dead tree that is unable to grow again, in that you would have been unable to hear the bell if it were struck again. You knew when the bell's sound, which is a perceived object, was present and when it was absent. So imagine you didn't think Oh, now the sound has stopped. How do you know the sound has stopped? You knew when the bell sound, which is a perceived object, was present and when it was absent. But how could it be that your essential capacity for hearing was present and then absent? If your essential capacity for hearing were in truth no longer present, what then would be aware that the sound had ceased? Therefore, Ananda, although the sounds you hear come into being and cease to be, neither the presence nor the subsequent absence of sound can cause your essential capacity for hearing to come into being and then cease to be. What is this that is shining through? In the ears, it becomes sound. In the eyes, it becomes sight. In the tongue, it becomes taste. In the body, touch. Through the brain, thought. What is it that's shining through? Hears sounds, and more than that. One way to view session is that there's a right way. It's like as if there's this tightrope and we either stay on it or we fall off. We're going to do it just right and we're going to go from this building which is not awakened to the other shore which is awakened. From Padawan to Jedi. 
And I say this because I think some people view session in this way. I'm going to do it right and not fall off the tightrope. <laughs> and another way. to think about it, is that we're in the Dharma's kitchen and we're cooking up meditation. And meditative states are beneficent forces that reduce, melt, and evaporate grasping. Whether it's these kind of inquiries of the nature of hearing, whether it's attention and object being like space in space, All meditative states are beneficent moments that melt and dissolve grasping. Hakuin Zenji said, One instant of zazen samadhi dissolves karma, purifies obstructions. Grasping. Mind seizing on an object. Mind stopping somewhere, getting snagged internally grasping, mind illusioning, trying to make up a new word, illusioning a sense of being a separate knower. All the meditative states that we touch and taste are part of that, that heat that melts what's in the pot. I want to invite you into some awarenesses that you may have already been tasting. It's possible to experience something and not quite appreciate the value of what we experience. Yeah. I was talking to a teacher, a senior teacher, who said that there are people who sometimes even drop into the nothingness state. And because they don't know what it is and they don't know that it's valuable, they just try to get away from that as soon as possible. Whereas it's a profound place to to fall into. So we're working with sound. Invite you to come to wakefulness in ear consciousness. And notice that the happening of sound and the goneness of sound are one moment. Neuroscience says that much of what our experience is, is the brain's processed perception actually a few frames later. And that we experience as if in a dream. We experience a world that is an echo. Maybe we can almost get out of that echo. And this is true in all the senses. Thought arises and it's gone. That's the same 
So inclining or sensitizing to a deeper degree of impermanence. Because impermanence leads to less grasping and no grasping is bliss, is well-being. Try something related but but different. You might close your eyes for this. And with your eyes closed, let the body be like a single, a single field of texture. So you might have some kind of picture in your mind of hands and legs and lips and all the parts. And forget or let go of that image of parts. Feel body as a single living sheet of texture. aware that this single living sheet of texture doesn't have a place that you can say it stops. Or conversely, try to locate the place, this single singleness of body texture stops. It's boundless. Let yourself enjoy the living, single texturing of body. And aware of all the sounds arising, arising within that. Field of texture. There's nowhere it doesn't reach. It covers the universe. Look, feel. The breeze blows in your heart. And from this place, if there's still a residual sense of being the hearer, shift to being sounded. Sounds sounding you, without needing to know what that you is.
So in our practice, we we practice the various samadhis, the 84,000 samadhis, as they say. We practice them. We are benefited by them. They purify obstructions. They reduce grasping. They increase wishlessness, namelessness, identitylessness. And the whole time we sit right in the heart of the Dharma. The whole time every being sits right in the heart of the Dharma. Rumi expressed it like this, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are tasting the taste this minute of eternity. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water and the jar that pours. This moment, this love comes to rest in me, many beings in one being. In one wheat grain, a thousand sheaf stacks. Inside the needle's eye, a turning night of stars. The ordinary wonder is manifested for each of us, regardless of what discriminating mind says, regardless of what some book says, regardless of what someone else says. The ordinary wonder is manifesting. Our practice is based on this, not on being impoverished spiritual termites needing to become great beings. Our practice is based on the ordinary wonder is just right here. Sounds and you are a wholeness. You can't have one without the other. I got this image sometime yesterday that a radio can play melodies and rhythms in an empty room, but it's not music unless you're there. So sit present with goalless enjoyment. Nobody special, no destination. To sit like this is also Buddha's Sangha Jewel. And to sit in goalless enjoyment, being nobody special with no destination, happens to be excellent conditions for entering samadhi more and more deeply and intimately. Nothing is lacking. Think about that. Think about steeping in that to the point where that's carried into your life as a vibe. Oneself as a vital part of the universe. Without you, no music. You can extrapolate the rest. Without you, no music, and everyone else, too. That ordinary wonder. We 
come here and do this because we want to really unmistakably, doubtlessly know it for ourselves. That's session.